0: Okay. We're going to look at Psalm 99. Now, there's a set of Psalms, a whole group of Psalms known as enthronement Psalms, or they've been uh, labeled royal Psalms. They're Psalm 93 to Psalm 100. Okay. These Psalms are worship Psalms. They affirm and celebrate God as King, God who is sovereign, who reigns over all. And so we're going to look at one of those enthronement psalms, and as an enthronement psalm, Psalm 99 is a psalm of the holiness of God. It calls us reverently to worship Him because of His holiness. It does talk about His sovereignty, which is important, which is critical, but it emphasizes God's holiness in sovereignty, and that's important. It shows how exalted and holy he is, how profound is the reverence that we owe him as a result of who he is. And when you look at this psalm, it's broken down into three stanzas, three courses, or three verses, if you will. The first stanza is verses 1 through 3, and when you look at uh, at the end of that uh, stanza, verse 3, it ends with, holy is he. The next stanza is verse 4 and 5, and notice how verse 5 ends. Holy is he. And then the third stanza of this psalm is verses 6-9. And verse 9 ends with, For holy is the Lord our God. So in each stanza there's a strong exhortation to worship God because he is holy. And one of the significant elements of God's holiness, and the reason why it's so critical, is that it is transformative. It changes lives. You think about in Scripture, when you see people who are confronted with the holiness of God, they are transformed, they are changed. Remember Isaiah in chapter 6? He saw the holiness of God and he was transformed and changed. You think about Paul, when he saw the holiness of Christ, he was transformed, he was changed. Moses was transformed, Peter was transformed, and many others in Scripture. Author David Wells, well, he wrote this, uh, which I, I wholeheartedly agree. He says, holiness is what defines God's character most fundamentally. And a vision of this holiness should inspire his people and evoke their worship, sustain their character, fuel their passion for truth, and encourage persistence and efforts to do his will and call on his name in petitionary prayer. <clears throat> and I agree. That's what the holiness of God is. The point that he is making and the point of this psalm is that the more we see the holiness of God, the more it will transform us. And so we need to cry out to God as Moses did. God, show me your glory. Lord, give me a glimpse of that holiness that I may be more transformed, more changed. And when we look at this psalm, Psalm 99, the mood of it is one of reverence. Yet there's intimacy here. Because the phrase, He is the Lord, our God, occurs four times. You see it in verse 5, verse 8, and twice in verse 9. So He's personal. He's our God. He's not some distant deity. He's not some power that's out there. <clears throat> he's very personal. There's intimacy involved with, uh, with God. And the awesomeness and wholeness of God implies that we must bow humbly in submission To him, obedience to him. We all agree that God is sovereign, and that is important and that is critical. I don't take anything away from that, but we must never separate that from the fact that our God is holy. So when you think of God's sovereignty, think of it in terms of the holy sovereignty of God. That's what this psalm emphasizes. The Bible as a whole emphasizes God's holiness more than any other attribute of God from cover to cover. You see God's holiness emphasized more than even His sovereignty. You see His holiness uh, even more than His justice and His mercy and His grace. Those are all critical, but notice holiness is emphasized even more. In fact, it is the only epithet that is uh, repeated three times. Nothing else is repeated of God three times. All right? To mention something twice is a strong emphasis, like when Jesus says, truly, truly, I say to you, it's emphatic. He's basically saying, pay extremely close attention to what I'm about to say. It is very significant. So to repeat something three times is super profound, super emphatic. And isn't it interesting, only holiness of God is mentioned three times. And this is why the holiness of God is emphasized in Scripture from cover to cover. Think about it. In Revelation 15.4, we see that God alone is holy. We read, Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. Next is 15.11. We see that God is majestic in holiness. We read, Who is like you among the gods, O Lord? Who is like you majestic in holiness, awesome in praises, working wonders? I mentioned Revelation 4.8. How it's repeated by the living beings, these living creatures, the highest order of angels around the throne. And they never cease to say that God is holy. Psalm 30 verse 4 says, sing praise to the Lord, you his godly ones. That's the saints. So you could say, sing praise to the Lord, you his saints, and give thanks or praise to his holy name. And over and over and over again, we see the emphasis on God's holiness throughout scripture. And so God is holy, and this psalm wants to emphasize His holiness and call people to be in awe and to worship Him. That's the power of this psalm. In fact, it was Charles Spurgeon who called this psalm, Psalm 99, the holy, holy, holy psalm. (laughs) And I agree. And so what we learn is that because the Lord is holy, worship Him in reverent intimacy and with a humble, submissive heart. That's what we're going to see as we work through this. So let's look at this passage, this uh, this song. The first stanza, verses 1 through 3. The Lord reigns, let the peoples tremble. He's enthroned above the cherubim, let the earth shake. The Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is he. So in this first stanza, what we see is that the Lord reigns in holiness. The Lord reigns in holiness. Therefore, our response should be worship in reverence or holy fear. Worship in reverence. Reverence means holy fear. The first phrase of this verse sets the stage. The Lord reigns. It doesn't get clearer than that. The Lord reigns. And, <clears throat> excuse me, this statement has profound implications over every area of our life. He reigns over all. As the one who reigns, there's nothing that exists that he does not reign over. You never come across something that God does not reign over, even every circumstance, even every situation. And even though the Lord, for his own inscrutable purposes, has allowed fallen angels and demons and sinful people to rebel against him, he still reigns over them. He still is sovereign over them. He's not stained by their sin, but he reigns over them. So when you see all of this corruption, all of this evil that's going on, especially that shooting in Texas, please understand, our God still reigns. Right? He's still over all of that. And so we should take great comfort in this fact that the Lord reigns. And because of the sovereign reign of the Lord over everything, notice what the verse says, the whole world should tremble. The whole Lord should tremble before him for he controls all things. See, this is not some weak idol that has to be carried around, that has to be cleaned up and wiped up every now and then. But this is the sovereign God who needs nothing from man. We need Him. He doesn't need us. When He created us, He did not create us because He needed us. He created us out of joy, out of pleasure, out of love and mercy. See, the, the psalmist here says the same thing in different ways, even in the second line, just in, just in case you missed it. He's enthroned above the cherubim. Let the earth shake. you got to remember, though, what the cherubim are. The cherubim are the highest order of ranking uh, angels around the throne. But if you recall in the Old, Test, uh, the Old Testament, it brings us back to the Ark of the Covenant. If you, if you look at the picture, if you ever see a picture of the Ark of the Covenant or if you read through it and see how it's described, you'll see that on this um, mercy seat are two angels. They're called the cherubim with the wings spreading over and they touch, right? And so when God says that he will meet with Moses, Above the cherubim, that's where he is. In other words, it shows that he's enthroned. He's over and above. Okay, That's the picture in the Old Testament. And so God instructed Moses to make that mercy seat (coughs) out of pure gold. But God told Moses he would meet him there. You could read about it in Exodus chapter 25. And so the ark represented the very presence of God. And so you have the cherubim with their wings over that. And so the only one who could enter the Holy of Holies, remember, who was that? The high priest once a year, right? And in fact, they would tie, uh, uh, I read this in one of the the, uh, traditional books that they would tie a rope around the ankle of the high priest. Because if he went in and he wasn't prepared, he's struck dead. Who's going to go in and get him? Nobody's going to go in and get him, so they pull him out, right? That's how holy God is. That's how critical it is that you're right before God when you enter the Holy of Holies. So God told Moses that's where he was going to meet him. That only happened once a year. And so the cloud of God, the cloud of God uh, kind of glory would cover, and that's where God would communicate with Moses or the high priest. That shows the holiness, the power of God. But to make it even more overwhelming, we have to remember something that God is no longer in that tabernacle with the ark. God is seated in heaven above the real cherubim, the majestic angels. God is above them. And he is enthroned, and he reigns in holiness. That's the picture we get. So the picture of God being enthroned or sitting above the cherubim is primarily one of his awesome holiness. You read the visions of God in heaven, and it's just overwhelming and stunning. If you were to see, you'd be left breathless. In fact, John was in the book of Revelation. He passed out because it was so profound what he saw. And this is why the psalms caused the entire earth to shake. This is the reaction of those who see the holiness of God. They're in holy fear. That's the picture we have here in verse 1. But it's interesting, too, that this picture of God enthroned uh, above the cherubim was also a picture of God's mercy towards sinners. Because it was on that mercy seat in the ark, where the high priest would go and he'd remember the blood of the sacrifice would poured out on the mercy seat and then God would uh, forgive the nation for that entire year. This is all pictured, of course, by Jesus Christ and his sacrifice, because in the book of Hebrews we read, he went up into heaven and his blood was poured out on the holy mercy seat on our behalf. So in all of his majesty and holiness, God is Merciful. God is merciful. That's why we should bow and utter praise, being overwhelmed. So his sovereign reign, coupled with his great mercy, should cause us to worship him with a holy reverence, a holy fear. But he doesn't finish it. Verse 1 is enough, but he doesn't finish. Notice in verse 2, the Lord is great in Zion. He is exalted above all the peoples. Zion, of course, is usually a reference to Jerusalem. But this is a reference to the heavenly Zion, where God dwells. And so the psalmist is emphasizing over and over how indescribably great the Lord is. And I want to ask you, do you see God this way when you think of God, that He is indescribably great? Or is your picture of God in a small little box, like most people? If he is, rip that box apart, because God is indescribably awesome. In fact, when John, if you read Revelation carefully, what I find interesting is John, when he gets this vision of heaven and he's trying to describe what he sees, he can't. So he uses similes. You read it carefully, you'll see it It was like, it was like, it was like, because John could not describe how indescribably awesome God is. And note the response in verse 3. Let them praise your great and awesome name. Holy is He. He's exalted above all people. Isn't it interesting in verse 1, their response was to be one of fear. But now it's to be one of praise. Right? They should tremble as even the earth shakes at the Lord's reign. There in verse 1. This is similar to what happened to Isaiah in chapter 6. When he saw that vision and they said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. In verse 4 of that chapter, we read that the thresholds trembled. Isaiah himself says, woe is me, for I am ruined. Why does he feel that way? The end of verse 4 tells us, my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. This is what the psalmist is describing. God in His awesomeness should cause us to fall on our faces before Him in utter fear and praise and exalt His name. And note that title, Great and Awesome. It emphasizes who God is. He is infinitely great and His greatness inspires all. That's what awesome means. It inspires all. So my question would be this. Do your thoughts of God leave you in awe? When you think of God, are you so overwhelmed like you just have to stop and say, wow. Because if not, then your thoughts are too small. Do your thoughts of God leave you in awe? Do they leave you speechless? Do Do they cause you to be stunned and think, wow. How can this be? Because that's what it should do. That's how our vision of God should be. Notice verse 3. Let them praise your Great and awesome name. And name refers to the entire person. Who God is. Right? And so the psalmist calls for all people to be overwhelmed. To be stunned at this amazing king over the entire universe. And we have to see him this way. God is God over the entire universe. That means everything that goes on, everywhere, from one end of the universe to the other, our God is over it all in holy sovereignty, in majesty. Nothing is beyond Him. That should leave us breathless. Whoa. Whoa. That's our God. That's why when we watch the news, we don't have to bite the fingernails. Our God is over it all. The war between Russia and Ukraine. God is over that. It's not beyond God. What happened in Texas? Sad and tragic. But our God is over that. He has His purposes. I don't know what they are, but I trust my God. He is great and awesome. And everything that goes on, He is in full control, in awesome majesty. Then he ends this first stanza. Holy is He. This is who God is. Everything about Him is holy. See, the biggest problem about God's holiness is that we can't define it adequately. Because it's beyond human comprehension. It's just too much. It's too great. That's why when you go to heaven and you hear the angelic hosts cry out, Holy! Holy! Holy is the Lord God! And they repeat it over and over. One angel, and then another angel, he springs up, Holy is the Lord! And then another angel, Holy is the Lord! Why? Because there's no other word. When we come to holy, we've come to the end of the languages. God is beyond it, so we just repeat it. Because God is so holy. Oh, that we would get that glimpse and let the angels fall on our faces and cry out, holy, holy, holy is the Lord. That's what the psalmist wants. He wants it from all people. See, God's holiness often is defined as God's righteous perfection and purity. And it includes that. It includes that, but it goes beyond that. It's more than that. So it's important to understand holy as the very nature of God. It's what makes God, God. It's what distinguishes him from everything else, his holiness. He's holy in everything that reveals him. His goodness, his grace, his power, his justice, his wrath. All of these are holy. So whenever you talk about God's character, always understand no matter what character you you mention, whether it's his love, his wrath, his justice, his all of it is holy. So it's holy wrath. Yes, holy wrath. Holy righteousness. Holy purity. Holy power. Holy sovereignty. Holy everything. That's our God. The great Puritan Stephen Sharnock points out how God's holiness relates to all of his perfections. I love this. He says, His justice is a holy justice. His wisdom is a holy wisdom. His arm of power, a holy arm. His truth or promise, a holy promise. His name, which signifies all his attributes in conjunction, is holy. Yea, he is righteous in all his ways and holy in all his works. It is the rule of all his acts, the source of all his punishments. Amen. Amen. Our God is holy beyond what we can imagine. What that means for us then, and I think this is very critical, is that God is not indifferent to how we regard Him, how we see Him, and how we respond to Him. God, I believe, finds it very offensive when we take Him for granted. I believe God takes is offended when we could talk about God and not be awed by him. That's the God we serve. When we understand the holiness, we are awed to the point of falling before him, just like Isaiah did. And it wasn't just Isaiah. Listen to Habakkuk's response, Habakkuk chapter 3, verse 16. Listen to what he says. He said, I heard, and my inward parts trembled. At the sound, my lips quivered. Decay enters my bones, and in my place I trembled. He got a glimpse of God's holiness, and that's his description. Do you tremble on your inner place? He was trembling. That's awe. That's what God wants from us. He wants us to be in awe of him. Isn't it amazing what we find awesome? Some guy drives a car. Oh, that's awesome. Really? A car? That's awesome? Some, someone makes a great play on, on, the, on the football field or hockey or whatever it is. Wow, that was an awesome play. Really? You take a little football and cross the line, and that's awesome? No, let me tell you awesome. Awesome is a God who says, Be, and the entire universe came into existence. That's awesome. So let's not compare. I do believe that God is offended when we take him for granted. When we are not awed by how great he is, how holy he is, how majestic he is. I think of Peter, in 1 Peter 5, 8, when he got a glimpse of Christ's holiness. And what did he say? He fell before him, and he said, uh, uh, in in chapter 5, verse 8, he says, Go away from me, Lord, for I am a sinful man. He was terrified of what he saw. And only when he came to that point did Jesus say, Peter, now you will be fishes of men. Until we come to that point to see God that way, he can't use us. Peter, find, That was not the first time Peter met Jesus. This, this was a, he had met him several times before. But it was here where he says, get away from me, Lord, for I'm a sinful man. And that's when Jesus says, now I will make you fishers of men. It's not until we see God in this way that God will say, now watch what I'm going to do through you. We have to see God this way. Be overwhelmed by who he is. Again, the Apostle John in Revelation chapter 1, he says, I fell at his feet like a dead man. He was so awestruck. He passed out. Can you imagine passing out at all? That's what happened to John. Daniel, the same thing. He couldn't get up. They picked him up. He was on all fours. He couldn't get up more than that. He was awed, overwhelmed at what he saw. And there's many other examples like Moses on the mountain. What these examples, along with the psalmist states here, makes clear is that when we are confronted with the holiness of God, it is awe-inspiring, it is overwhelming, it changes your life. It changes your life. So if you want your life to be changed, take the time to cry out to God, Oh God, I desperately need a glimpse an understanding of your awesome holiness and cry out to him fast and pray if you have to man when you get a glimpse of that wow does it just transform your life and once we do that, our, our response will be worship, it'll be reverence, it'll be a, a, a holy a holy fear. In First Peter, chapter 1, verses 14 through 19, Peter said, As obedient children, do not be conformed to the former lusts which were yours in your ignorance, but like the Holy One who called you, be holy yourselves. Notice, be holy yourselves also in all your behavior, because it is written, You shall be holy, for I am holy. If you address this Father, the one who impartially judges according to each one's work, Conduct yourselves in fear during the time of your stay on earth, knowing that you are not redeemed with perishable things like silver or gold from your feudal way of life inherited from your forefathers, but with precious blood as of a lamb, unblemished and spotless, the blood of Christ. Notice, conduct yourselves in fear. I read about a professor at a Christian college who mentioned the fear of God in his classroom, and he was stunned because every person in that class argued against him about being afraid, being having this fear. Because they said, fear is opposed to his love. And that's how they thought. But I find it amazing. What does, what does Peter say? Conduct yourselves in fear. In Romans chapter 3, Paul gave this list describing the depravity of man. He gives this long list. And at the very end of that list, verse 18... He gives this statement. There is no fear of God before their eyes. The depravity of man. There is no fear of God before their eyes. So it's safe to say that if you do not fear God, you don't know God. You could say you prayed a prayer. You could say you walked an aisle. You could say whatever you want to say. But if you do not fear God, you don't know God. That's scripture. When we catch a glimpse of his holiness, we are on our faces in humble fear. And so, knowing that he is holy should lead us to this reverent fear. Let's look at the second stanza, didn't intend to go that long, but sorry I got carried away. The second stanza, verses four through five. The strength of the king loves justice. You have established equity, you have executed justice. And righteousness in Jacob. Exalt the Lord our God, and worship at His footstool. Holy is He. Holy is He. So in this stanza, we see that the Lord reigns in justice and righteousness. He reigns in justice and righteousness. What is our response? Our response should be worship in humble uh, worship with a humble heart. So He reigns in justice and righteousness. We are to worship with a humble heart. So here we see God's uh, holiness in uh, righteousness and justice. The king here in verse 4 is the same as in verse 1. It's a reference to the Lord as king. And keep in mind, and we've seen this, we, we can attest to it, that a strong leader, a king, who lacks a passion for justice will be a tyrant. We've seen this throughout history, and we're even seeing it now. Right? God is indescribably strong, and in His strength, He loves justice. Thus, everything He does is just. Even when we don't understand it, He is just. When man is wicked and evil, God remains just. And again, I go back to what happened in Texas. We don't understand the wickedness and the evil, why those little ones were taken. But our God is just. He is still sovereign and holy in all of that. Now, one of those children died apart from God taking that life. Who's the author and finisher of life? God is. Who numbers our days? Those children's days were numbered. And I pray that each and every one of those children are in his presence. Because if they are, praise God that those children don't have to experience what we have to go through in this world right now. But our God is still just. Our God is just, even if we don't understand it. And this is, sometimes it's hard for us to, to accept because we think we know what is just and righteous. Isn't it amazing that we would question God's justice thinking like we know what's best? Really? J.J. <laughs> Perona, great uh, scholar uh, of the Psalms, said this of God's power. He said, His might is no arbitrary power like that of earthly tyrants, but a judgment-loving might. His power only expresses itself in righteousness. And that's our God. He is righteous and just. He reigns over all peoples in His perfect righteous justice. Always. And you look at verse 4, it says, You have established equity. Equity means Fairness. So he rules with fairness. He rules with justice. He rules with righteousness. And again, it's his righteousness, his equity, not ours. Because we don't know what equity is the way he does. So God's power never runs amok. It's never out of control because it is perfectly balanced with his justice and righteousness. So any time that God, every moment that God exercises his power, it's in righteousness and justice. There is right, And there is justice because God has established it. Even when people, even when man uh, throughout the world rebel against it, God still maintains his justice and righteousness. He cannot do anything else. So regardless of what people may think, regardless of what people may do, it is God who establishes equity and he brings it to fulfillment. I say that because in light of what happened in Texas, there are many people asking the question they always ask. How can God allow this? Where is God in this? And all these things. And when people ask me, I say, you know where God is? God is on his throne. He reigns over all of this. He's got his own perfect holy uh, purposes. And I trust him for it. I don't have an understanding of what's going on. But I don't need to. He does. Praise his holy name. So yeah, it was horrible. It was tragic. I did pray for those parents. And I did weep for them. I can't imagine. I put myself in their shoes and all I could do is weep. I lost my own kids but I praise God that I have this hope that he is perfectly perfectly righteous and just he always does what is good even when man rebels that's our God because of his love for justice God always 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 executes justice it is impossible for God to do anything else and the fact that he is omniscient the fact that he knows everything means that he will always judge fairly because he knows not only every act but he knows every motive of every heart God knows the motives of your heart the motives of my heart and God judges righteously because he knows it all so we can trust his justice and so because of his justice and equity and righteousness, all people are called to verse 5. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. <clears throat> worship at his footstool. So this should motivate us to praise him. Remember, we one day will stand before the Lord, right? And give an account. That in its, uh, of itself should cause us to bow before him, Right? But the danger is that it is possible for us to go through the outward motions of worship without submitting our hearts, right? Isn't that what Jesus told the Pharisees? Rightly did Isaiah prophesy. What? These people worship me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. I had a a pastor one time say, you know when Christians are the biggest liars? On Sunday morning when they worship. Because they sing these songs, but they really don't mean it. I thought I never, I never thought of that that way. I think it's a, a critical issue we need to really take into consideration. Lord, when I worship, I don't wanna just go through the motions. I wanna worship from deep down inside. Overwhelm me with your presence. And so we are to exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Footstool pictures bowing before the throne of a monarch. In other words, you come in total submission. That's how we approach God. So because our king is the righteous judge of all, because of his perfect equity, his fairness and justice and righteousness, all people are to humble themselves to God. What would happen to this world if all people saw God that way and humbled themselves that way? Well, I can't tell you what it's going to look like here, but I know one thing. One day in the millennial reign, that's exactly what it's going to be. And it'll be beautiful. But the reason why we have the darkness and the chaos that we do is because there are too many who reject God, do not bow before him, and they put themselves in his place. And that's why we have such chaos. And here we are uh, commanded, we are told, exalt the Lord our God and worship at his footstool. Bow before this God. We have to submit our hearts completely to him so that we worship him with sincerity and truth. And to lend more emphasis, the psalmist repeats again, God is holy, indicating that his justice and righteousness is holy. So he deserves all our worship in humility and in submission. That's what the second stanza is about. So the first stanza, we saw that the Lord reigns in holiness. Therefore, our response should be worship in holy fear or reverence. Here in this stanza, we see that the Lord reigns in justice and righteousness. And our response should be, worship with a humble heart. Bow before him. Now we come to the last stanza. And here we see that the Lord reigns in faithfulness, mercy, and righteousness. Our response should be, worship him with reverent intimacy. Intimacy. Notice as we read through this. Moses and Aaron were among his priests, and Samuel was among those who called on his name. They called upon the Lord, and he answered them. He spoke to them in the pillar of cloud. They kept his testimonies and the statutes that he gave them. O Lord our God, you answered them. You were a forgiving God to them, and yet an avenger of their evil deeds. Exalt the Lord our God and worship at his holy hill, for holy is the Lord our God. So know what he does here. He shows how... God reigns in faithfulness, mercy, and righteousness. God is a faithful God filled with mercy. See that in verses 6 8. And notice how he does it. He uses three main leaders of Israel's past history and how God dealt with Israel through them and how they experienced the power of God and the blessings of God. Remember Moses and Aaron. They were the ones who led the nation out of Egypt, Right? to the promised land. They were the first of the priests in Israel. They were the ones who established the national worship that God gave them. Samuel came later, but he was another one who called upon the name of the Lord and God answered. And if you recall, he was the last of Israel's judges, the time period of the judges, he was the last one. And he was the one who anointed their very first king, King Saul. And then he also later on anointed David through whom God made that covenant. So all three men had their faults, but notice, they cried out to God, and God answered. That's God's faithfulness. And so you read through their stories, you'll see again and again how they cried to God. And again and again, God answered. He did great and mighty things in response to their prayers. Incredible examples. Now God speaking to them in a pillar of a cloud refers to Moses and Aaron. Samuel was not around at that time. But God answered the prayers of all three men. You go to uh, 1 Samuel 7, 5 through 11. You can read it. You see how God answered the prayers of Samuel. How many times did Moses have to stand in the gap when God said, Step back and let me just destroy these rebellious people? And Moses continually, No, if you take them, take me. I don't, Lord, you brought them here. And remember, Moses was concerned about God's name. What will the nation say? They're going to say, God hated them and brought them out here to destroy them. Again and again and again, Moses intervened. Aaron intervened with Moses, and God answered the prayer. So God, in all of His holiness, is a God who answered the prayer of His people because He is faithful. Never forget that our God is holy in faithfulness. He remains faithful. But if you notice these three men, they also failed, didn't they? Remember Aaron? Aaron notoriously failed at the incident of the golden calf. He's the one who put the golden calf together for them, right? And then Moses, he failed by striking the rock. God said, speak, he struck it. Samuel failed in that his sons did not follow the Lord. He did not discipline and deal with his sons to follow in his footsteps. So these men were men of flesh. Yet they cried out to God and he graciously answered them while at the same time inflicting consequences because of their sin. So God answered them. Notice the mercy. They sinned and yet God still heard their prayers. That's mercy. That's mercy. And God is the same God today. How many times does he answer our prayers when we uh, we don't deserve it? As they obeyed God's commands, God spoke to them and he continues to speak today and then notice how he addresses god our god he's a personal god he's not a distant deity he's a personal god who hears his children he is great and powerful he hears and he answers and he does answer every prayer he may not answer it the way we want because we don't know ultimately what's best but god will always answer the prayers of his children always so we can pray to him because he remains faithful As a holy God, He cannot allow their evil, their evil deeds to go unpunished as well. That's important. They rebelled and God avenged their evil deeds. Think about Moses. He was forgiven. God forgave him and heard his prayers. But Moses did not go into the promised land. Right? That was part of the discipline. So the reason why I bring this out, is the psalmist brings it out, is it's important. And I've heard Christians say things that just, just irritate me. It's important that you see here the balance between God's faithfulness in answering prayer, His mercy in forgiving sin, and His righteousness in imposing punishment for sin, so that we don't take His mercy lightly. In other words, we must never willingly sin with this thought that, I'm going to be forgiven anyway. Hey, God's going to forgive me, so it doesn't matter. And I've heard those words. If the blood of Christ covers me, then if I sin, God is going to forgive me no matter what. And yes, we will be forgiven. But it does not mean there will not be consequences. There will be consequences. God is a good father, and good fathers will discipline their children. God will do that. The story of David and Bathsheba is a great illustration. Was David forgiven for what he did? Yes. But did he suffer? Yeah, he lost a firstborn child. And then after that, his own son chased him out of the kingdom, took all of David's wives and laid with them in broad daylight for all to see. So was David forgiven? Oh, he was forgiven. Will you be forgiven? Oh, you'll be forgiven. But God does bring discipline. I don't know about you, but discipline scares me. I know it's good. But it scares me. That's God's faithfulness and justice. So God's holiness is not compromised when He uses evil people to accomplish His sovereign purposes. He may use evil people in our lives to discipline us. And that's when we begin to question, why me, God? Why this person? Our God is a righteous God. He knows what He's doing. So rather than looking at sin and saying, I'm going to be forgiven anyway, we should look at God's holiness and be in holy fear and realize, no, I reject I reject this sin. So God reigns in faithfulness, he reigns in mercy, he reigns in righteousness. What this should lead us to is intimacy with him, intimate worship. Because when you look at verse 9, he tells us, exalt the Lord, our God. Exalt the Lord, our God. He is our God. He is to be exalted by all. He's personal. And then the psalmist repeats himself in the second line and calls for people to worship God. But instead of worshiping at his footstool, like he said earlier, we worship at his holy hill. Which, of course, back then referred to the Temple Mount. The temple was on that hill in Jerusalem. And it's holy because God is holy. So God is worthy of worship. So the first stanza ends with, holy is he. The second stanza ends with, holy is he. And of course the emphasis there is that God is holy. Now the third stanza ends ends in a similar way, but here he makes it more personal. Here's where he makes it intimate. Holy is the Lord our God. It's very personal. I fear too often that too many Christians look at God as being God in heaven, and that's where he is. And we need to understand our God is not just in heaven. Yes, we call that his throne room, but where does God dwell? Dwell. Yeah, in the heart, everywhere, in the hearts of his people. Can you get any closer than that? So we, we need to understand that our God is this majestic, holy, awesome God beyond words and he dwells right here, he dwells right here. So there needs to be this intimacy with God, not just some, oh God, bless me today, amen, bye. God is not a genie, God is a father who loves to be with his children. I know for me, I hate the fact that my children live away from home. One's in Ohio, one's in New York. I told them they need to confess their sins and move back to Florida. I'm just kidding. But I miss them. But when they visit, I love to spend as much time as I can with my kids and my grandkids. I love to be with them. I do. Uh, It's all about them when they come home. I enjoy being with them. And that's me. A filthy wretch like me wants to spend time with my own children. What about a holy God? See, we need to develop that intimacy. That's what we're called to here. He is our God. He's not just some power. You ever hear people say, just throw it up into the universe. Throw what? Into what? What are we throwing up into the universe? I heard it just yesterday, and I'm I'm scratching my head like, what does that even mean? Throw it up into the universe? No, no. When my children had issues, problems, you know where they went? They went to death. Even to this day, my daughter, she'll always call my wife. Love talking. But whenever there's a problem, Dad? Because you know Dad is going to do everything he can not take care of. it. There's that personal intimacy. That's what God desires from you and from me. He's not a distant deity that is impersonal. So when you think of God, think of him as our God. He's not just some God. He is our God. He is our personal God. He's very personal and he remains holy. Another great scholar for, uh, from the Psalms is uh, Derek Kidner, and he writes this. I love this. He said, The majesty is undiminished, but the last word is now given to intimacy. He is holy. He is also, against all our deserving, not ashamed to be, to be called ours. Well may we worship. Think about that. He's not ashamed to call us His children. He's not ashamed to dwell in us. He's not ashamed to say, I am their God. Are we not to be overwhelmed by that and humbled at that and drawn near to that? What a great God we have with such personal intimacy. It's overwhelming. That's the grace of God. He is holy and yet he is very personal even to the point where he hears our prayers. You think about that. He hears our prayers. And so we worship God intimately through Jesus Christ, our mediator, but always with reverence and awe. So we see that our God is a holy God who deserves our worship, but worship is to be with reverence and with intimacy. So what does that mean for us overall? I'll just I'm going to leave you with a couple of thoughts here as we near the end. First, since God is holy, we who are His children are to be holy as well, as we saw in 1 Peter 1. In other words, <clears throat> you and I do not have the option to be holy or not to be holy. I don't feel like being holy today. That's not open to you. Okay, we are commanded to be holy because our God is holy, right? So we strive for holiness. And holiness, of course, begins at the cross where we are forgiven and we're brought into this relationship with God. This is where God becomes our God. So the first thing we need to do is we need to strive for holiness in our lives before God. A second thought, something I've mentioned throughout, is that worship must characterize our lives. Worship is not just what we do on Sunday mornings. I know a lot of times we say, let's go to worship, let's go to worship. It's really not, I know what they mean, but it's really not a proper statement. You don't go to worship, you do worship. And you worship throughout your life, everywhere you go and everything you do, right? God is holy and he is worthy of exaltation and praise. And as I mentioned in these three stanzas, we are to worship in holy fear, we are to worship with a humble heart, and with reverent intimacy. We are to worship. We need to strive to get a bigger view of God in His majesty and holiness. Cry out to God to see Him bigger than what we've seen Him before. God, first of all, confess if we're not awed by Him. Confess to us and say, God, show me your greatness. awe me by your majesty that I may worship you. And so if we're not moved in our hearts, then cry out to God. Again, I, I keep going back to Moses' prayer. Think about Moses. By, <clears throat> by the time that we come to this point when Moses prayed, think about it, he saw God's majesty and power on Mount Sinai. He had communed with God for 40 days and nights on that mountain. He had seen his kind of glory. He saw God part the seas. He saw the, the, the ten plagues. He experienced all of these things. Was he satisfied? No. What did he, what did he do when he was on the mountain? God, show me your glory. In other words, he went through all of this, but it wasn't enough because he says, God, I need more intimacy with you. Show me your glory. We need to cry out to God. Lord, as you showed Moses, as you showed so many others in Scripture, show me, open the eyes of my heart, and give my heart this vision of your majesty and holiness, that I may worship you. So read and study God's word. I would encourage you, read good books that talk about how great our God is. There's so many books out there now. Be selective. Read good books that talk about the glory and the majesty of God. Let his holiness overwhelm you that way. Read, meditate on God's word. Meet with him every day. And when you meet with him, don't make it just a, a list of prayers. That, uh, 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 I should say, a list of requests. God, I need this, and that person needs that. No, you should always come to that point when you come to God in prayer where all you do is worship. Lord, I'm not asking for anything. I just want to be with you. I want to enjoy your presence. Worship him every day. I would encourage you. Do that when you first wake up. What a way to start the day. God, I need to see you. Show me who you are in Scripture. So see Him as revealed in His Word. Humble your heart before Him. Call upon Him. God is not a God that stays away and says, Ah, try a little bit harder. God wants you to see Him. And we have to believe that and trust in that. Our God desires that from you and from me. Or for us. And then finally what this will lead to is purity of heart. When this starts to happen, our hearts are Purified. What we begin to do is we begin to judge and cut off every sinful thought that instantly pops into our minds. Don't meditate on those. Cut them off. Don't tolerate so-called little sins as if they don't matter. All sin matters. It's offensive to God. And don't, um, don't justify yourself with the thought that, well, everybody does it. I love my wife because when I say things like that, she says, I don't care what everybody else does. And she's right. I'm not living for everybody else. I'm living for my God. So we don't console ourselves with that. We don't justify ourselves. Don't expose yourself to TV shows or movies that defile you. Things that don't honor God. Things that are just corrupt. Think of it this way. If you would not be comfortable watching it with the Lord Jesus Christ sitting next to you, then don't watch it. If there are certain things that you wouldn't do if Jesus was next to you, then don't do it. Because that will just defile you. Ask yourself this question constantly. And this is something I try to keep in mind. In fact, put it on a card in front of the steering wheel if you have trouble driving like I do, or at work, or wherever it may be. And put this question Will this help me to grow in holiness? Will this help me to grow in holiness? Let that question affect all of your activities. And God will transform your life. So in this psalm, and there's a lot more that could be said, but in this psalm we have the holy, holy, holy God that calls us to worship. I pray with all of my heart that as you leave this place, our God will burn that into your soul, burn that into your heart, so that even as we go into the next hour, We'd be overwhelmed, and we worship together, brothers and sisters. Now, I did all of the talking this morning. I apologize. I got on the roll. I couldn't stop. Forgive me. Are there any questions or comments? Anything? Sometimes I'm long-winded, and I don't know it, so you're going to have to raise your hands and say, hey. So, Any questions? Any comments? Okay. Let me stop this, and we'll pray. let's pray. Our God, we do thank you for this incredible psalm, a psalm that ascribes to you that you are holy, holy, holy. You are worthy of humble, reverent worship. And I pray for each of these here, my brothers and sisters, myself included. Lord, may your spirit take these words, the words of Psalm 99, and burn them in our hearts and overwhelm us, and give to each of us a greater glimpse of your holiness and your majesty. Overwhelm us again and again. And as we go into the next hour, as we worship, as we sing, as we pray, as we hear God's word, Lord, stun us with your presence. Lord, you must increase while we decrease. Come and do what only you can do. We pray again for Bruce. Oh, gracious God, I pray that you would so use him and speak through him that we would be overwhelmed by your presence. Lord, do what only you can do. Move in our hearts, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Just makes us realize how we do put God in that box. Oh, believe me, I've I've had to fight that in my own life. It's very normal. But very normal. Well, <laughs> you do this, the the one